And it'd be so much fun to, uh, to spend all our time on these words of Jesus, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, because if I was to quietly have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with you all, I would get an aggregate of so many burdens that are in this room right now. Uh, and, but I'll leave it to what Lindsay said. She had said it so, so well. And, uh, and, and I'm going to talk about this, um, uh, and I'll, I'll leave it to Lindsay for that, about the, the burdens and the take my yoke upon, I'll leave it to her and I'll leave it to communion because that's really where it all takes place. The sense of the lightning of the load you know, of, of what Jesus did on our behalf. And I'm going to go into this obscure line in this obscure text about children. And I'm going to skip right to it, okay? Let's get right down to it. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you have revealed them to infants. Revealed them to infants. I mean, why did Jesus say such a thing? That why would God reveal the truths of the universe to children? I mean, you would not put children in charge of the State Department, or would you put a child in, in charge of your investments, or your university, or your city? I mean, we, you might have, and you probably have used your children and your grandchildren to download an app for your smartphone, and you probably have used your child or your grandchild to help you make sense of your ATT digital service. But by and large, you wouldn't trust such institutions to your children. So why, when it comes to the secrets of the universe, does Jesus say God bestows them on children? I mean, and I think there are a number of possible answers to that question, and I've been thinking about that this week, and I'd like to share that with you. Well, one is that there's this notion that children are innocent. Wondrous and pure. Children are a foretaste of heaven, dwelling within a complex world until puberty sets in and surliness comes. It's certainly the case that children often see things that adults don't see and are sometimes unencumbered by inhibitions and cynicisms in a way that inspires us and frees many adults who feel like our life is so heavily circumscribed and has become so full of cynicism. You probably have had those from the mouth of babes encounters where you've been at the table and all of a sudden your child says something very, very profound that may have to do with compassion or kindness or the something about butterflies and you kind of go wow wow but you've also probably been at the table um, where the children have not been as innocent they have been surly they have thrown stuff um, they have come across as worldly I mean the other day um, Reese who was sitting here he's six um, my, uh, my grandchild and, and he goes over and looks at Kira's, down at Kira's cho uh, shoes, and he said, Nana, why do old people have such ugly shoes? <laughs> the truth hurt, 
And this marketing savvy kid took his grandmother shopping. And she has much hipper sneakers in her closet now. Reese, worldly Reese at six says, Nana, you don't have the right look. And what parent who hasn't been around the table or had you had to break up a fight with siblings and you felt like what I just witnessed looks like it came right off the pages of callousness, of Lord of the Flies. Somebody was going to kill each other. Our preschool director, Sherry Vossel, tells me that children are becoming more worldly and it's happening at a younger age. What she used to see happen at seven, now she sees possessed among four-year-olds. And on this side of the hallway are twos and threes, and there is just innocence, and there's just purity, and someone comes and visits, and their eyes light up. And on this side of the hallway are the four-year-olds, and when the D.A.R.E. officer comes, the three-year-olds come in and hear the presentation of the D.A.R.E. officer in his nicely pressed police uniform, and they are just in awe. The four-year-olds come in, and they just want to look at the officer's gun. And the innocence of children, it's, it's not just a biological fact, it's not a theological certitude. And Samuel Wells of Duke University reminds us that childhood innocence is really an ideal that's been manufactured by the social and economic cir circumstances of recent centuries. So here's the wonky part of my sermon, okay? So he writes that in the Middle Ages, there were, of course, people aged between infancy and adulthood, but there weren't children. Go look at paintings from the Middle Ages. And there, there are babes in arms, and then there are young adults, but children tend not to be painted. Um, by the time you were seven, you were more or less an adult. You dressed like an adult, and you were doing the work of an adult. And childhood emerged in Europe in the 16th and 17th century at a point where there was enough of a critical mass of people who had enough sufficient economic security to withdraw their offspring from the grueling workplaces for a lengthy period of time in order to give them a formal education. And gradually there grew this sort of aura around a class of humans who were to be kept pure by promoting them, the child. And once the sociological shift was made, a whole host of all kinds of psychological and biological realities crowded to underwrite it. Uh, Samuel Wells of Duke University said, the end of the wonky part of the sermon. So back to Jesus' words. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Why would God, again, reveal the truths of the universe to children? And it's not that children are more special, although it is easy to see that they are so often put on a pedestal. And in this day and age, I, I, children seem to be on a pedestal in a way that I don't remember when I was a, as a parent raising children. But, but, but what we see with children is, and what we love about it, and what's so refreshing, is we see the epitome of potential, do we not? Indeed, one of the fascinating things about children is that they're almost a blank slate, a tabula rasa. And you, you get a chance to see the life in the early chapters. And you get a chance to shape that. Uh, and, and don't we love to post on Facebook the pictures of all of the young, oozing talent of potential among our children, children and grandchildren. And so we see a piece of art, a drawing that a child has made, and we say, oh, here's a young Rembrandt 
check this, post it. Or we see the swing of the bat and we say, oh my gosh, here is a future professional baseball player or a shot that gets scored from underneath the basket by a four-year-old and we said, ooh, future LeBron James. It's not just that children have the potential. What I want to say to you all this morning is that we all have potential. So children aren't special because they have potential, because we all have potential, no matter our age. But we tend to overlook that fact, and we project our sense of potential onto children. We expect them to show up and do something sort of spectacular. So I don't think Jesus said these words because of potential children have because we all have it. Carl Reiner, the, 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 uh, the famed um, uh, producer, he was 91. He wrote a letter to uh, uh, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy and said, um, young man, who's a, he's 81, and he's thinking about retiring, and he said, it's too early for you to put your feet up on the ottoman. I've had the five most prolific years of my whole life in the last five years, is what, um, is what Reiner said yesterday uh, to Anthony Kennedy and said, so you still have a lot more to contribute, and I would extend that to everybody. Of course, we're, you're not a Supreme Court justice, but you all from your place have something to contribute. But moving on, so it's not really because they have potential that Jesus might have said this. But a more promising answer in response to the words of Jesus is that children, I think, are vulnerable. I mean, they're almost always, why don't I say almost, they're always less powerful. They're less shrewd. And they're less well-connected than adults are. Which doesn't make them innocent, but it does make them dependent on others. And it does make them disproportionately subject to the intentions of others, whether they're good-intended or, or ill-intended. So this past uh, couple of weeks, I've been looking at the childhood rates for those living in poverty. And children make up around half of those who live in poverty in this country amounting to one in four children in the nation as a whole, they live in poverty. And here in Tennessee, according to the Annie E. Casey Foundation, it's the Blue Chip Foundation that released its figures of how children across the 50 states are doing. Last week reduced, uh, produced its, uh, it, it, its, um, its, its new findings for this year. They said that 49% of our children that there are 49% of our children who qualify for free and reduced lunch and depend upon our schools for a meal here in Tennessee. That's 461,000 children across the state who qualify for free and reduced lunch. And that figure is up 22,000 kids from what it was five years ago. It's going the wrong way. And when it comes to health, children are especially vulnerable and dependent on the intentions of others. The Kaiser Family Foundation puts the potential impact of the current Senate health care bill, the ACHA, it puts the potential of children in sharp relief there when it says children make up about a quarter of the U.S. population, but about half of the entire Medicaid population. I had no idea. Half of the Medicaid population is accessed by children. They constitute the single largest eligibility group in the Medicaid program and would be affected by changes to its funding structure the most. 
particularly for essential services aimed at childhood growth. And the ACHA aims to change that funding structure with its rollback of the Obamacare Medicaid expansion and its changes to Medicaid financing would slash the program even before Obamacare levels to the same, to the tune of $880 billion reduction between 2017 and 2026. And a common weave throughout the Bible is how God identifies with and upholds the vulnerable from slaves in Egypt to exiles in Babylon to widows in Samaria to blind men on the road to Jerusalem to Jairus' daughter in Galilee. And Jesus, you see, became a vulnerable baby himself and dies as a political casualty of this trial was one of the interpretations along with the interpretation that we also focus upon to die on behalf of our sins. Yes, children are vulnerable. And that may be why God reveals the secrets of the universe to them. But I think there's one more characteristic between beyond innocence, beyond potential, beyond vulnerable. I think there's one more characteristic of children that's less sentimental than being innocent, less of a projection than they're being full of undeveloped potential and more mundane than they're being vulnerable. And I believe that maybe this is why Jesus thanks the Father for choosing to reveal the secrets of the universe to children and for what that statement means for us today, that children are largely ignored. You know, you know, I don't mean that parents don't spend time with their children. And I see oftentimes, and Sherry and I talk about it, that the roles are reversed where the parents are the ones being led by the children and the children are becoming the parents and letting people, the, uh, the, the parents um, know what they want to do and the parents follow suit. It's not that we don't put, you know, children, uh, uh, they're not important and they're, they're, they're very important. It's not that we don't put any programming for our children here. We've, we put a lot more dollars into our programming for children here and we're seeing the results of that with their faith formation. Nor am I suggesting that um, uh, we don't offer enough programming, nor am I suggesting that, uh, but but what, here's what I want to say, that children say quaint things and they ask interesting questions, but does it really occur to us that a child might have something to say and provide the answer? And, and that's what I mean by that, that the children may have the answer for us and we largely ignore them. And we say listen to children. When we gather um, for our training with teachers for the preschool in the fall, we'll say again and again that line, listen to children. We listen to them, and it's a cliche that comes into play in our training and practices when adults need to be reminded that children can be vulnerable to abuse and that they seldom make up stories of genuine mistreatment. So we say, listen to children. There's a wonderful children's book. I don't know if you've read it. Um, now, not now, Bernard. Not now, Bernard. I don't, have you ever read that or read that to your child? Um, the infant Bernard... Um, goes around trying in vain to tell his parents that there's a huge monster in the backyard. And the mom is making dinner, not now, Bernard. Um, the mom is trying to hang a picture, not now, Bernard. The father is busy, not now, Bernard. And the problem is that Bernard thinks that the monster is going to gobble him up. 
And so young Bernard's parents simply respond, not now. And so the bewildered Bernard goes back in the yard, and sure enough, a monster promptly gobbles him up. And then the monster enters the house and starts nibbling at Bernard's parents. But the parents, busy with what they are doing, say, not now, Bernard. And the book ends with the monster in Bernard's bed complaining that he doesn't want milk and cookies at bedtime. But I'm a monster, he says. Not now, Bernard, the mother says, without having really looked at Bernard. And the moral of the story is clear. Listen to children or they will turn into monsters. It's a good moral, but the gospel of Jesus Christ goes further than listen to children because it's good for children to tell you what they're thinking and feeling and makes them feel loved and important. Children are special, but it's not because they're innocent and it's not because of some innate insight children have. It's because, as Samuel Wells has mused, God has chosen to order creation this way. And I suspect that the lesson for us this morning is that if you want to know God, you're going to, you're going to want to stay close to children and listen to what they say, not for their sake, but for yours. Why has God chosen to order creation this way? I think it's because it's typical of God, especially when it comes to Jesus, who loves to flip convention on his head. In Jesus' sight, nothing is inferior, wasted, of no account, nothing is ignored. God doesn't just speak through children, and God likes to speak through whatever or whoever is widely ignored. Ignoring an aspect of God's creation is an insult to God the Creator. Valuing and listening to neglected parts of God's creation, especially in human form, is a vital dimension of the way we worship and come to know God. Well, in Jumping right into what Jesus would say about children, I skip right over establishing the context that was going on back when Matthew wrote what he did. And here's the times and the context. The times were hard. The government, a huge bureaucracy that provided so many important things like roads and military support and the justice system was hopelessly out of touch with the people. And the religious establish, est establishment wasn't much better as it seemed to be focused on preserving what it, what it had with little or no vision for what it might be. Religious leaders supported the edicts of the government. And apathy was the prevailing attitude in the community. And it must have been so easy for people to say back then, why even bother when nothing ever seems to change? Such is the thinking, is the message of the so-called wise and intelligent ones to whom Jesus refers. The ones who have lived life and know what life is as it is and we can never change it. After all, our fate is our fate. Why try to make a difference to make things better then? Why try to face the challenges? We can only tend to our little world, to our personal space. The rest we leave to God or fate or simply to everyone else. That's what I think people thought back then. And it's easy to think this morning that what went on back then sounds a lot like today. Well, the challenge for us all is to not be lulled into apathy and to, to listen and to be moved to pray for, to value, and to write about. As in writing a letter or calling 
your elected officials, no matter what your position may be uh, on this critical Senate health care bill, but at this critical time to call them and let your voice be known, to show that you're in the game. The takeaway for all of us this morning is the challenge to ask ourselves back when it comes to the children which I've been talking about, whom do we ignore? What do you ignore? What in your regular surroundings do you consistently overlook because it's just easier that way or you feel like you can't change anything? Who in your circle do you regard as of no account? And to whom do you consistently find yourself saying, not now, Bernard? What in yourself do you profoundly neglect? Listen up. Pay attention. Because if you key in to what you may neglect, you may just discover where God is perhaps revealing something new to you. Amen.